Now here's something to do. Go to a bookstore, any bookstore, chain, independent, used, whatever, and then ask for the self-help section. And you know what? You will be pointed to the self-help section. And you'll find books on relationships, mental health, exercise, diet, spirituality, religion. You get the idea, lots of information. Now ask for the other help section. The, well, that's one point I'm making. It's awkward, isn't it? We have book after book on self-help, a whole section and sections of sections, but where's the other help section? Even the title sounds awkward because we, and by we I mean Western culture, we haven't conceived of such a section for our bookstores, have we? Sure, there are books about helping others in the religion section, the philosophy section, even in the self-help section, but there's no section called helping others. What's up with that? Here's the thing. I found it striking when I first started flying from the U.S. to the United Kingdom some 30-some-odd years ago. In U.S. airports, bookstores were full of self-help books. In the U.K., not so much. Now, unfortunately, that has changed in the past three decades or so. Gatwick Airport now has self-help books. But it's a contagion they caught from the United States. It isn't a natural-born phenomenon in Europe. Or fly to Mexico City, same thing. Why? Why is helping yourself so much more, what? Prominent, popular, easy? Why is it helping, why is it that helping the self is a thing and helping others is not such a big thing? That's my question, why? And that's what I want to think about for a few minutes today. But I think the answer is complicated. Now on file, in the courthouse in the county where my family farm is located in the southern part of Illinois, there's a will from 1845. The will is from the man who homesteaded the land from the government, my four greats grandfather. He was on the leading edge of the European invasion into the Midwest. He wrote the will for his two surviving children. In addition to the land, the will mentions some valuables, a rifle, a plow, a spinning wheel, a two-bitted axe, and sundry movables. Now, two-bitted for you non-farmers means it has two heads. Still my favorite kind of ax, even though I can't use one anymore, due to my back surgery. Thank goodness. But it's a good ax. At first glance, that sounds either kind of pathetic as a legacy, or perhaps indicative of the American frontier spirit. What did those settlers need besides a rifle, a plow, a spinning wheel, and an ax? But upon reflection, one realizes that these are the things that they couldn't make for themselves. Farmers on the frontier couldn't make rifles or plows or ax heads or spinning wheels. I don't know if you've ever thought about how to make that wheel round out of wood, right? It's not easy. With these tools, they could make the food and the houses and the crops and the clothing. 
And they had a few movables like needles and some furniture, iron cooking utensils. And of course, with that rifle, they could murder the natives. But the list also reveals the utter dependence of even the early European subsistence farmers on technology. The European way of conquering the continent depended upon technologies that used iron, steel, lead, etc. Despite this fact, what does American mythology tell us about those early European settlers? It's about sturdy individualism and, of course, their willingness to use violence. Now, I admit they were independent people. Many rural people still are which is part of what has created our rural-urban split in U.S. politics. Many farmers, most of my family, see regulation, and that's any regulation, as socialist meddling. This worldview was well summarized by the mystery writer Raymond Chandler back in the 1940s in his novel Farewell, My Lovely. His character, Philip Marlowe, the noir detective, says, uh, and I wish I could do Humphrey Bogart, but I can't. <laughs> I needed a drink. I needed a lot of life insurance. I needed a vacation. I needed a home in the country. What I had was a coat, a hat, and a gun, end quote. The current political debate about uh, steel tariffs has some very deep roots, in other words. Now, the central bright spot of what we nowadays call the Enlightenment of the 18th century is that individuals began to have rights within a society. And that was a new idea. Before the Enlightenment, certain individuals had rights in society, but most people only had obligations. This new way of thinking led eventually to one of those seven principles. Theo read it this morning, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, an enlightenment idea. I've said it before from this platform, this conviction that all have dignity and worth comes not from intuition or emotion, but from reason and science. Two enlightenment era events occurred in 1776 that still resonate to this day. First, some of the British colonies in North America declared their uh, independence from the British Empire. Secondly, the Scottish moral philosopher Adam Smith published his book, The Wealth of Nations. Now, Adam Smith argued that economies work best when individuals have the freedom to follow their enlightened self-interest. Smith thought that the net result of enlightened self-interest in economic decisions is the magic that multiplies human good and freedom. To make his case, Smith looked back at medieval Europe and saw a horror show in which petty tyrants were constantly at war with other petty tyrants. The large landowners called themselves dukes and earls and lords and ladies, and the fact that they collectively owned all the land meant that they also owned all the people on the land to buy, sell, rape, and mutilate as they saw fit. No inherent worth and dignity in that Europe, Adam Smith saw. The lords and ladies did these horrendous things, Smith claimed, because 
they didn't have anything else to do. Then trade began. And the lords and ladies of Europe got interested in stuff. Baubles, bangles, bling, and thus they stopped buying, selling, raping, and mutilating the poor. Smith wrote this, quote, oh, oops, skipped a page. Got to get this, this uh, commerce and manufactures gradually introduced order and good government, he says. And with them, the liberty and security of individuals among the inhabitants of the country who had before lived almost in a continual state of war with their neighbors and in servile dependency on their superiors, end quote. Whether or not this is actually what happened in Europe, it is what many believe who think that capitalism and democracy go hand in hand. After the happy advent of capitalism, Adam Smith said, a little bluntly, quote, the real tragedy of the poor is the poverty of their aspirations, end quote. What Smith failed to notice is that the lords and ladies of Europe did indeed stop meddling with their own people all that much, but then they went to India, Asia, North Central and South America, New Zealand, Australia, etc., and bought, sold, raped, and mutilated the natives there as they pleased, stealing other people's baubles and bangles and bling, and of course, we call that colonialism. Yes, Adam Smith really did say, the tragedy of the poor is the poverty of their aspirations. The poor are poor because they don't think big. And I have a suspicion that some of our politicians in Washington, D.C. and a few other places still think that's the case. In this scenario, my forebears dreamed big. They took their rifles, joined a well-regulated militia, shot some Brits and some natives, and created wealth, democracy, and freedom. They were sturdy individualists. And that's one way of telling the story. But there are other ways of telling that story. Some of you here today are old enough to have gotten a letter one day that said, greeting. You are hereby ordered to report for induction into the armed forces of the United States. Willful failure to report at the place and hour of the day named in this order subjects the violator to fine and imprisonment, end quote. Now that's been a little problematic in US history. That well-regulated militia we hear so much about was actually required service of all able-bodied men in the British colonies and then into the revolutionary period. My five greats-grandfather became a patriotic American soldier of the revolution, whether he liked it or not. His alternative choice was to head for Canada, as did many people during the Vietnam War who got the preceding letter. The first U.S. war after the ratification of the Constitution occurred in 1812, and there was an immediate move to start a draft. In response to the conscription proposal of the time, U.S. Representative Daniel Webster said this on the floor. 
Quote, the administration asserts the right to fill the ranks of the regular army by compulsion. Is this, sir, consistent with the character of a free government? Is this civil liberty? Is this the real character of our Constitution? No, sir, indeed it is not. Where is it written in the Constitution? In what article or section is it contained that you may take children from their parents and parents from their children and compel them to fight in the battles of any war in which the folly or the wickedness of government may engage? Under what concealment has this power lain hidden, which now for the first time comes forth with a tremendous and baleful aspect to trample down and destroy the dearest rights of personal liberty, end quote. You go, Daniel Webster. And there you have it, the dearest rights of personal liberty, because that's the tension, isn't it? Here I am, living as a free individual in a free economy, pursuing happiness by acquiring my baubles and bangles and bling, and then the nation, that communal whole, in its folly and wickedness, as Webster phrased it, compels me to discomfort myself, perhaps suffer for the rest of my life with PTSD, and maybe even get wounded or killed. What's up with that? You can't do that, government. I have my rights. I'm a sturdy individualist. I think I'll grab my rifle and head to Montana and join a well-regulated militia. And left or right, liberal or conservative, pacifist or Rambo, these are unsolved riddles that go all the way back to the founding mythologies of this country. The conscripted soldiers of the American Civil War had a saying, rich man's war and poor man's fight, which kind of goes back to that feudal, feudal system of medieval Europe that Adam Smith thought had disappeared when we came up with the idea of free markets. Well, I, I hope you're not waiting for me to solve this particular conundrum. <laughs> All I'm attempting to do is kind of look at it a little bit. This week, I'm considering the importance of community. Next week, I want to turn it around and look at why individualism is absolutely required for a democracy to work. Both these things are true. And there is no solution, I think, because the fact is that the United States is born of steel and violence and coercion and communalism, yet at the same time we embrace radical freedom and individualism and the soul of the U.S. has been ripped asunder from the very beginning. But the United States is merely the logical conclusion of a general propensity in Western thought. You see, in the rural area that I come from, despite the mythology of radical independence that makes everyone a libertarian, almost everybody, we know that we are interdependent because the fact is that where I come from, the area is so isolated, almost everybody is related to everybody else. The gene pool has hardly varied in over 150 years, so we're all related. We're all family. And what we call the code of the hills there is that you help family and you don't harm them. So 
Radical independence is based on radical dependence and relationship in those sorts of rural cultures. This is something that paradoxically gets more difficult to see when most people live in urban and suburban areas. As Amanda was discussing, it becomes a little cloudier. The Stanford neuroscientist Dr. David Engelman writes this, quote, brains have traditionally been studied in isolation, but that approach overlooks the fact that an enormous amount of brain circuitry has to do with other brains. We are deeply social creatures. From our families, friends, coworkers, and business partners, our societies are built on layers of complex social interactions. David, Dr. Eagleman goes on to say, quote, all this social glue is generated by specific circuitry in the human brain. Sprawling networks that monitor other people, communicate with other people, feel their pain, judge their intentions, and read their emotions. Our social skills are deeply rooted in our neural circuitry, and understanding the circuitry is the basis of a new field of study called social neuroscience, end quote, social neuroscience. One of the positive recent developments in, in continental European philosophy has been a move toward a theory of community. The list of philosophers working in that area includes the contemporary French philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy, who wrote the words that appear at the top of your order of service this morning. We do not have meaning anymore, he says, because we ourselves are meaning entirely, without reserve, infinitely, with no meaning other than us. In other words, radical individualism is an illusion. Meaning, human meaning, is an us. So why isn't there another help section in the bookstore? If Adam Smith is to be believed, it's because we don't need one. Enlightened self-interest will lead each of us to production and consumption that is advantageous to the whole. All others need do is have the imagination to hook onto that gravy train and make lots of money in the free market. Time has shown that I, this idea does have a few flaws in it. For many reasons, many people cannot benefit from rising economic tides. In addition, the planet suffers from endless consumption and production. Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe is making a classic American mistake. He has far more than a hat, a coat, and a gun, or a rifle, plow, spinning wheel, and ax. There is a vast system of industrial relationships, economic relationships, governmental relationships, and social relationships behind that hat, that coat, and that gun. If Marlowe walks on mean streets, as Raymond Chandler wrote, it's because people have ignored the social neuroscience that Dr. David Eagleman is discovering and that the philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy is naming. We do not have meaning anymore 
because we ourselves are meaning entirely, without reserve, infinitely, with no meaning other than us.